Welcome. This is the weekly Sunday sermon from Redeemer Bible Church in Temecula, California. You can find us at RedeemerSoCal.org. This week's message by Pastor Jason Swanson, What Did You Expect? The original date of this message was the 11th of February, 2024. I am excited about getting back into the Gospel of John, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 15, and Lord willing, unless Jesus comes to take his church within the next 45 minutes, we will finish John chapter 15 this morning. John chapter 15, we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 27 this morning. Continuing on with the Lord Jesus Christ, Judas having left him, now he is with the eleven. I believe that he has left the upper room and he is with his disciples en route to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he has just wonderful truth after truth after truth to share with his Disciples, as his time among them is now literally just down to hours before he is crucified and their whole lives will turn completely upside down. Beginning at verse 18. Let's look at God's wonderful word together. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you For my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Let's pray for our time in the the wonderful rich, deep, living and active word. Bow your heads, please. Heavenly Father, we, we need you. These are not easy words for us to, to hear or to swallow, but they are so needful. They are so good. Because we see in the, the words of your son some 2,000 years ago that he knows all things. And that when he says that the world will hate your followers, we can look back in the pages of history and see indeed just that. 
we can look today at our world and we can see just that. Allow us to glean, to understand your word this morning. May you refresh us through your word. May you speak to our hearts if there are areas in our lives that we are not following your path. Reveal those to us. There are ways that we can be lights in this world. Reveal that to us. Keep all the distractions aside. We pray that you would be honored and glorified now as your word goes forth, Lord, and help me to communicate your word accurately in the power of your spirit setting me aside and allowing your truth to shine forth now. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know if verse 18 surprises you, but it should surprise you. In fact, all of these verses until you get to 26 should be a bit of a surprise. When you get to 26 and 27, we've already seen that. We've already seen Jesus promise the Holy Spirit to come. But what is of utmost surprise to me is how Jesus goes from what he's been communicating up to this point with what started off with the 12 in the upper room instituting the Passover, the last supper with the disciples and and framing for them this reference, reference point of love and service. And he gives them this in this full display of his love and his service for them as he does the unthinkable. And, and what does he do? He washes each of their feet when they should have been washing his feet. And then from there, he, he then explains to them why he has done this and that what the implication is for them. What they should then do is they should follow likewise. They should serve one another. They should love one another. And he, and he gives them this new commandment of the new covenant in verse 34 in chapter 13. Again, this is all encouraging. Don't you want to hear? Yes, let's love one another. Let's grow more and more in our, in our love and our knowledge of how to love one another. Let's do a better job at loving one another. Hey, you guys blew it. You missed an opportunity. There's going to be many more opportunities. So look at chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And he clarifies it. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. How encouraging. He's encouraging them. Hey, I am leaving. You're going to need fellowship with one another. You're going to need one another. This is part of my plan for you, for my church. The one another's, the loving one another, the existing in this sweet relationship together as a body. That's pictured in, in, in my relationship as a triune God with you. And then he goes on and he continues to just give them blessing upon blessing. It's it's like they keep coming back and he keeps filling up their plates with more promised blessings. Chapter 14, what is he doing? I'm I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you, verse 3. 
And I will come again and receive you to myself. And, and that where I am, where, there you may be also. Yes, I know your hearts are troubled, but, but take solace in this. I'm, I'm coming back again. I love you. And then what does he do? Then he promises the promise of all promises. The promise that as great as it's been to have Jesus with them, there is something, there is someone greater that will not just be with them, but will reside in them. And he speaks of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the end of chapter 14, giving them this added encouragement I'm going to be with you in the presence of him, another helper, and you know what? He's just like me. And then it would seem that they leave the upper room and they're traveling through Jerusalem, making their way to the garden, and most likely he sees some some vines, sees a vineyard, and he uses this beautiful illustration of I'm, my father's the vine dresser. I'm the true vine. You are my branches. You can do nothing apart from me. So abide in me. Live in me. Reside in me. Have a relationship with me. And then he says at the end, abide in my love as I've abided in my father's love. So you abide in my love. Recognize how much I love you the relationship that I have with you, then he goes crazier and he, and he says, and instead of calling you slaves, which I rightfully could call you because I am your creator, no, I call you friends. More, more encouragement, more heaps and heaps of, of God's goodness upon them and the blessing that he's promising them. And I'm calling you friends. You should enjoy that friendship with me even after I'm gone through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let my word abide in you. And I also want you to, what? This I command you, verse 17, that you love one another. Can't do that on your own. Can only do that as you're abiding in me. So he's explained not only their relationship, not only our relationship with him, that we are to abide in him, that we are to abide in his love, that we are to let his word abide in us. But then he goes into our relationship with one another, their relationship with one another. That is what is going to change the world. They're not going out as solo missionaries. They're going out together. And they are to love one another as they serve him together. That is, that is our calling. That is how the world will be changed. By seeing what? The love that we have for one another. And now he's going to go into our relationship with the world, their relationship with the world. What is that relationship going to look like? Everything else has just been encouragement after encouragement after encouragement, blessing after blessing. And now as he talks about the world, it's as if a dark cloud comes over. And he says, yes, and as far as you and your relationship with this world goes, here is what I want you to understand. It's very simple. 
the world is going to hate you. He doesn't say the world isn't going to like you very much. He doesn't say, well, sometimes you, you might be a little bit of, a, of an annoyance to the world. So you need to figure out how to keep them from not liking you. You, you need to blend in. You, you, you need to water down the message so it's not so offensive. You need to rethink how, 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 how you do church. You need to rethink everything. No, he says emphatically, clearly, over and over again, just as much as he said, love, love, love. It's hate, hate, hate. This is what you have to look forward to. But take heart, because recognize that this is not your home. I have something so much better for you in store. Right now, I've given you a plan and a purpose. And as we look at the life of Jesus and we see his life lived out before us on the pages of Scripture as we've walked through the Gospel of John, what did you expect? For the world to just be friends with those that follow Christ? No, that that isn't what we've seen in the life of Christ. That isn't what we've seen in in the history of, of Christ's church I don't usually do this, but look at your, your note page in your bulletin, your points to ponder. I, I kept it like this for a reason because this is difficult. Do you, do you know there's only two types of people in this world, those who hate Jesus and those who love Jesus? There, there's no neutrality. There's no common middle ground. When we're talking about spiritual issues, when we're talking about biblical truth and biblical worldviews, there's only two. And so when Jesus says that the world will hate us, there are implications. At least there should be implications in our own lives. I've been asking myself these questions a lot. Consider how Jesus says that we as believers should expect the world to hate us. Do people at work, school, in your neighborhood or in your family hate you because of your relationship with Jesus? Not because you're annoyance. But because of your tie in with Jesus Christ, right? We, we definitely have personality clashes with, with others and particularly those in our family who know us so well and perhaps those that we work with. But what Jesus is going to say oh so clearly is the dividing factor here is him and what his name means. And so the challenge for all of us is as we look at our lives, do we see this? Not that they don't like us. No, it's, it's, it's further down than that. Do, do we see this hate? Do you know what the word hate means? It means to dislike strongly with an implication of aversion and hostility. That it continues to spiral up instead of down to where they get more and more aggressive. And as we look at the world today, don't we see this? As we look at Christ's church, as we walk through the book of Acts, haven't we seen this? We, we see this right from really the inception, the beginning of Christ's church in Acts. 
The, the day of Pentecost comes. Peter does this amazing sermon because of the Holy Spirit, right? And all sorts of people get saved. And Christ's church is birthed. And then you get to Acts chapter 4 and, and what happens? There's a guy begging who can't walk. And, and, and Peter, how does he respond? Hey, I, I don't have any silver, I don't have any gold, but this is what I will give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk, and he does. And do you know what happens? In the name of Jesus Christ, when the name of Jesus Christ is preached, is proclaimed, is talked about, is witnessed to, the world responds. And the world has no other response but anger. And so it shouldn't surprise us. This is what we should expect. We, we've seen it in the book of Acts. What happens right after that? They come after the apostles. They come after Peter and all of them, and, and they put them in jail just for a night. And then the next time, that when they see them, the very next day, they, they slap their hands, and what do they say? Hey, you can do anything except for speak about his name. And so then what do they do? They speak on his name. And then we see the trajectory of the way that things go. Yes, many believe. And then on the other road, as those are believing and walking with Jesus, there's a whole other road that, that the, that's the world's road. And they become more and more antagonistic. They become more and more angry. And they get more and more upset with these apostles and the nerve that these unlearned men could even speak the way that they speak. And so what do they do? They, they try to stop them. Over and over again, we see them trying to stop them. Chapter 5, they, they laid hands on them, put them in jail. Then you get to 6 and 7. What happens in chapter 6 and 7 of the book of Acts? We know Stephen, the first martyr. Why? Why is he martyred? Because of the name of Jesus. That is who he is proclaiming. He is preaching him as the resurrected Savior. And that is offensive. And so we see they kill him. They stone him. And Saul's there. And really, the first 12 chapters is all about the apostles and the gospel going forth. Christ building his church. And yet, we also see the anger of the world zeroed in on Christ's church. And then Saul becomes Paul. And the rest of Acts chapter 12 to all the way to the end is about the apostle Paul and what happens to him as he proclaims the gospel. And as he goes from town to town, over and over and over again, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 to 27, Paul is harassed. No more than that. He is beaten. He is stoned. He is left for dead. And yet God continually looks after him in spite of his circumstances, in spite of the suffering. And then you would think, okay, is that the end of it, Pastor Jason? At, at some point, there has to be a, 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 a time period where it stops. No, what Jesus says happens. Jesus' statement is prophetic. He's saying that this is the way that it will be until he makes all things new. And so it shouldn't surprise us this is what we should expect. Even in the history of the church, we know about Nero. He was a crazed lunatic. And who did he go after? Who did he want to blame everything on? Oh, let's pin it all on the Christians. 
I'll burn this town up. I'll burn the entire city, and I'm going to blame them. Why? Because that's what the world does. It hates Christ's church. It hates us as believers. And you would think, okay, maybe Nero was an anomaly. He was the only emperor in Rome that decided that the Christians were no good and that he wanted to obliterate them. No, actually, it continues on. Domitian in the second century, Trajan in the third century. Then you get this other crazy guy, Diocletian, in the third century. And what does he do? He doesn't want to just destroy Christians. He wants to destroy anything that even points to them. So the Bibles too. Oh, and then it seems like everything is going to turn out to be good because Constantine makes... Christianity, the official religion of the Roman Empire. And so you'd think, okay, this is when it's just going to go good. And yet that is not what happens. Because then we see that there is a time where the Roman Empire, who is going after the church of Christ and believers, is replaced by the Roman Catholic Church. And I, I stumbled upon this article that actually many commentators referred to, and let me read it for you, concerning the persecution of Christ's church. Under the Roman Catholic Church, which replaced Imperial Rome as the dominant power during the Middle Ages, persecution broke out anew. Ironically, this time, the persecution against true believers came from those who called themselves Christians. The horrors of the Inquisition the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre and the martyrdoms of many believers epitomized the Roman church's effort to suppress the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The writer then goes on and says this, more recently, believers have been brutally repressed by communist and Islamic regimes. In fact, it has been estimated by none other than a Roman Catholic source, that in all of church history, roughly 70 million Christians have been killed for their profession of faith with two-thirds of those martyrdoms occurring after the start of the 20th century. 70 million Christians and two-thirds of that has happened after the start of the 20th century. The same Catholic journalist cited that in A news article estimates that an average of 100,000 Christians have been killed every year since 1990. And has it changed? Oh, it may not be broadcasted. It may not be publicized. It's not something that we see all the time, but it continues to happen. Why? Because Jesus Christ cannot lie. Because whatever Jesus Christ says will happen, indeed will happen. If he says that he is coming back, he is coming back. If he says that the world will hate us, then the world will hate us. And we tend to think that this is kind of outside ourselves. Oh, I I get you, Pastor Jason. You used to be a missionary in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. I'm sure that you saw Satan alive and well there. And, and yes, and I, and I want you to remember this man's name so that we can be praying for him as a church. Sabien, write that down. Sabien. He was our, our village sorcerer, but he was also my best friend for a time. He was the one that taught me my language of Siawi. And there was a time when he would come to the teaching and he would hear the word of God. At some point, he just started stiff-arming God. 
And he started stiff-arming everything related to God. And he no longer came to the meetings. He no longer came to our church services. He then forbid his wives from doing it. People started calling him of the line of Satan, and he got mad, so he came to church with his bow and arrow drawn, and and he was going to fill the church full of arrows and kill a whole bunch of people. This happened several times. He continued in his animosity and his anger towards God in the teaching, telling me over and over, I'm not mad at you. And I'd love to say that that's that's just it. I, I have no idea where Sabian is now, but I know he still is not professed faith in Jesus Christ. Pray for Sabian. Pray for his seven wives and his, well, the time when we left, he had 50 children. I don't know how many he has now. He's a mess. Why? Because he does not know Christ and Satan is his father. And what's crazier is he recognizes that and we've had talks about that. I pray that I get an opportunity to speak with Sabian, but I know that you're thinking, okay, that's out there. How about here? What would happen if you went and stood up in a school board meeting and you stood for biblical truth? Well, I can tell you what happened. They try to pull you out of that meeting. And if you become a, if you would become a school board member, they'd try to stop you from continuing on that particular job, would they not? How about you go into town hall meetings and you stood up and you told the city that abortion was not just sin, it was murder. How, how would that be received? How about biblical marriage and, and you stood up and you said, no, there is only one marriage that is honoring to the Lord. All other marriage is evil. How would that be received? We, we know how that would be received. They'd say that we're closed-minded. They'd say, they say that we're intolerant. They say that we're self-righteous. They say that we're hypocrites. And yet the reality is we know that everything they say is wrong because what we say isn't what we say. It's what God says, and we know God's way is the right way and the better way. And so as we look at this, I I believe where Jesus is coming from is he wants us to recognize oh so clearly that this world has nothing for us. And I don't know where you're at this morning, but, but maybe you've been buying into the lies of Satan. You know, he's good at it. Going all the way back to the beginning. He questioned the goodness of God with with Eve. That's what Satan did. Are you really sure that God said that? And are you really sure that God is for you? And that whatever he desires for you is best because you know what? I know what's best for you. And so many people are continuing today to be pulled away by the world, even believers, into thinking that, oh man, I shouldn't follow his way the Lord's way. Instead, I'm going to follow this other way. And Jesus is saying that if you love the world, you hate him. And if you love him, the world will hate you. So we see two expectations in these verses. The believer's expectation from the world, that is what the world is going to do to us, what the what, are we, what the believer, what we as believers are going to receive from the world, and that is clearly hatred. 
We're going to see that in verses 18 to 25 and 26 to 27. We are going to see another expectation. That is the Lord's expectation for believers who are in the world but not of the world. That is us. Verses 18 to 25 is we see that believers' expectation from the world, what we can expect and the way the world will treat us and look at us is hatred. We see three reasons why we shouldn't be surprised. But actually, we should expect it. And if we don't see it in our lives, then we should pull back and go, man, am I walking on the right road here? Or am I so much like the world that they say, man, there's no distinction between you and him. And so you know what? Man, I agree with everything that you say. And I believe in everything that you believe in. And the way that you live, it's just the way that I live. And so where does Jesus start? Jesus starts with himself. He says the reason why the world will hate us as believers is because of his example, because the world hated him first. Verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. There are times in languages when you have a conditional statement that that we phrase or that we interpret with the if clause. If this, then that, right? It can be brought in such a way that it has a, a positive sense. Such as this, and this is what this means in verse 18. If the world hates you, and it will then know that that's okay. Not because you're obnoxious. Not because you drive people crazy in who you are. Remember the context. Remember what Jesus is saying. This is all relating to his word, to him, to his name, to his works. Those are the things that drive people, the world, away from us as believers. That's what makes them angry. It's the glorious gospel. It's the fact that they can't do anything to earn his favor. And all that is contained in the wonderful, oh so awesome, glorious gospel. It hated our Lord and Savior first. And haven't we seen that throughout the book of John, this wonderful gospel? John chapter 5. What do we see? We see the Jews hating Jesus. Why? Because of the things that he's doing on the Sabbath. Continue to seek him out to kill him. Why? Not just because of the things that he's doing on the Sabbath, but when you get to like John chapter 8, verse 59, it's because of the things that he's saying. It's because of who he is equating himself to be. It's because he says, before Abraham was, I am, and they know that he is claiming to be God, so they pick up stones to throw at him, but it wasn't his time yet, so he doesn't die. What is that a picture of? Well, that is a picture of Jesus claiming deity on the one hand, and on the other hand, it is a picture of the angry world's response to Jesus Christ. So clearly the first reason we should expect the world to hate us as believers is because it hated our Lord first. The second one might be a little more difficult to swallow. 
And that is the reason why the world hates us is because it only loves its own. And what is difficult to swallow is to consider whether or not the world hates you. Whether or not the world hates me. And if perhaps I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to walk the, the middle road too much, perhaps the Lord has given me more opportunity to stand on his truth and to courageously proclaim who he is and what this world is. Notice what he says in verse 19, and this is a different kind of conditional statement that he's making. Now he's going to say it in a, more negative aspect, if you are of the world, but you're not. That's what is implied. That's what is understood. And he goes on to say that. If you are of the world, but you're not, the world would love its own. See, if you were of the world, then the world loves you. It's also understood, well then, if the world loves you, then you must be of the world. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this. The world hates you. Why does the world hate us? Because the Lord Jesus Christ chose us to be out of the world. We are indeed in the world, but we are not of the world. Meaning that as as we come to Scripture and we see everything that God's Word says about how we should live, we are to be different. And we are to look different. We are to smell different, so to speak. We are to live different. We are to be different in the way that we live. So what does this mean? This means that if the world doesn't hate us and if the world loves us, then something is wrong. Because what we see is that Jesus, what, chose us. And what did he choose us to do? How did he choose us? Here he says clearly that I chose you from being out of the world. I chose you out of the world and placed you into a new world, a new kingdom, my kingdom. He's emphasizing himself in this, in the way that John writes it in the Greek. When he says, I chose you, the the I there is an emphasis. He's pointing to himself and saying, this has nothing to do with you. I chose you. And then the Greek verb for for choosing is is, is in the reflexive mode, which means that, that what he's really saying is, I chose you for myself as my possession." I'm calling you, I'm choosing you out of the world and I'm placing you in me. And as a result, what do we see? We see that we are not of this world. That means that we are no longer on Satan's side. And so when you come to a passage like 1 Peter 5, 8 that says Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, he's talking about us. He's not going after someone that's already heading to hell with him. He's going after those that are his enemies, those that are no longer on his side. And who would that be like? Turn with me to 1 John. This is such 
a helpful passage. So good to understand as we go all the way to the back of time, to the beginning, to the first brothers ever born. And we see the life of Cain and we see the life of Abel. Why did they function the way that they functioned? Because they were from two different kingdoms. They had two different kings. And and they are really a picture of this animosity and this hatred. Long before Jesus says this, he knows that this is the way that it has functioned ever since man fell. Because in the beginning, there wasn't this animosity. There wasn't this anger. Because they lived in this perfect innocence and union with God in this relationship with him until sin entered the world, until Satan came. And then even their offspring, and this is why we are all sinners, tried and true. Look at what it says in 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. 1 John chapter 3. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That isn't what the world would tell you. The world would tell you the reason why Cain slew Abel was because of some inner tragedy that happened to him. Some problem that he had within his social makeup and his history and his family treating him the way that they were treating him, making poor Cain have to work in the garden instead of with the animals. In our world, and psychologists would say, oh no, this is, this is outside of Cain. Oh, poor Cain. Is that what you see here? Why does Cain do what he does? He does this because he has a different father than Abel. Because he has a different king than Abel. Because his king is Satan. Because his father is Satan. And so he is following his father in that. And notice what the reason was. Why is it that Abel bothered Cain so, so much? Was it because he was faster than him? That they had foot races all the time and, and, and Abel kept beating him. Now notice what it says. Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That is why the world hates us. As imperfect as we are, we are still in some aspect a, a light shining in the darkness, exposing their deeds, revealing their darkness. And as a result, how do they respond? They respond in anger just like Cain. We know how it is. We, we feel that same anger at times, do we not? And what happens if you do not let that anger go? If you do not ask for forgiveness for that anger? What does God actually say to Abel? Man, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to master you. You must not let it. But it did. As people look at your life, as your neighbors look at your life, and those that aren't saved within your family, do they see a difference? Do do they see a difference in my life? 
in, in my family's life and what we are endeavoring and desiring to do in the way that we raise our kids and the way that I conduct myself and the way that you conduct yourself. All of these things point to why the world hates us because we are different and because we hold to what God desires for us to hold to. So the world hates us because it hated Christ first, because it loves only its own, and we are not of this world. And then finally, third, we see, because it does not know God, his works, or his word. I'm giving you three subpoints for the first point here. Notice what Jesus says. They don't know my father. They don't know my word. They don't know my works. They're clueless to all of them. And in fact, the more that he does it, the more they get upset. The more he talks about how he and the father are one, the more they don't get it and they think it's blasphemy and they want to kill him. The more works he does, the more they think that it's by the power of Beelzebul, which is Satan, and they miss Jesus for who he truly is. And as a result, what does Jesus' indictment of them say? He he says, if I had not come and spoken to them, verse 22, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He's not saying that they, if he hadn't come, that they would have somehow been born sinless. He's talking about one particular sin. He's talking about the sin that is called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about that something that could only happen when he was living in his incarnation and what we would call his first coming and what were they doing they were attributing the work of the holy spirit in the son of god to who to satan instead of recognizing who he was and giving him the credit that they should have given him they instead look at it as something satanic and we know from god's word that jesus says then that is the unpardonable sin I believe it's Matthew 12, 31 to 32. They just don't understand. They don't know him. They don't know his word. They, look at what he says in 20. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. There's encouragement for us there and there's also a crazy word picture for us. Persecuted there is is the word to basically let the dogs go after someone, to let the wild beasts go after someone. That's what they would do for for sport. And yet even in that, Jesus is also giving us and his disciples encouragement to know that there is also some who, when you proclaim my word, they will keep it, they will believe it, they will indeed understand it. So how do we think of this persecution, the world coming after us and hating us? We we should look at it as an expectation that will indeed happen. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, same word, will be persecuted. Will be persecuted will be chased around like a wild beast. First Peter 
4, 12 to 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. This is part of our lives as believers, that the world would hate us. Because the world does not know our God. The world does not understand his words and the world does not understand the work that he is doing. Notice what he says in verse 25 as well. They hated me without a cause. He's pointing his listeners back to Psalm 35, 19 and what is said of David. That there were those who wanted to kill David, but they had no real reason. And it is exactly the same with the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is the world so full of hatred and anger for the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it justifiable? Is it for a good reason? No, as we've seen in the life of Jesus, he was innocent. And yet they still what? They still crucify him. And so for us as believers, there will be times when unwrongfully we will be accused and we will be persecuted. And if that is the case, then we rejoice that we could be counted worthy of suffering like our Lord. So first, we should expect the world to hate us. Why? Because it hated our Lord first. Because the world only loves its own. And because the world does not know our God, his works or his word. Second, we see this, the Lord's expectation for us while we are still in this world. And that expectation for us is this, that we would be his witnesses. We would be his witnesses. And in case like me, and I'm sure everybody in this room or viewing online this morning, we feel like we are so inadequate. We are so incapable. We are so weak that there is no way we could do this. Are you kidding? This is difficult enough when the world doesn't hate me. How can I do this, Lord? And perhaps his disciples were thinking the same thing. And so what does Jesus do? He circles back around to the Holy Spirit. He circles back around to abiding in me. He circles back around to, it's not about your strength. It's about my strength made perfect in your weakness. It's not about your knowledge. It's about my knowledge. And you pointing everyone to me, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. So how do we do this? We do this through the power that he gives. And that is the Holy Spirit. We do this through the truth that is to be proclaimed, which is what the Holy Spirit does and who the Holy Spirit is called the truth. And finally, we do this through the vessel that he uses, the vessel that he has chosen to be his vessels, which is us. 
It is only through this helper that we can accomplish this task of being what his testifiers, his witnesses, those who will testify about him. And we're going to see this further in John chapter 16 as we see what the Holy Spirit does. Verse 14, namely, well, 13, but when he, chapter 16, John, when he, the spirit of truth comes, notice what he will do. He will guide you into all the truth. So he's the one that guides those into the truth when we preach the gospel to someone, when we share Christ with our neighbors. It is the Holy Spirit who will guide them into the truth so that they can see the truth and respond. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. That's no doubt speaking of them being able to write scripture and prophetic scripture. But it also speaks to the fact that he will disclose everything about Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in 14. He will glorify me. That is what the Spirit's job is. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So we see on the one hand he's the power that allows us to do that. But he's also the truth about who Jesus is about what Jesus did and about how Jesus did what he did, what he came to do. Why did Jesus come? He came to pay the price of our redemption. Amen? And so that's what the Holy Spirit does. He points everyone to him and how glorious Jesus Christ is. But That's not all that it speaks of. It's not just saying that the Holy Spirit does this. We know from Scripture that Jesus Christ, when he's coming into Jerusalem and the triumphal entry, the religious leaders say, stop them. And he says, no, if I stop them, the rocks would cry out. He hasn't chosen the rocks to be given the ministry of reconciliation. He's chosen that for us. And that's why he says in verse 27, and you will testify also. That we are the vessel that the Lord uses to reach this world. This world that will indeed hate us. The question is whether or not we are going out and reaching this world. I have an opportunity for us all You guys know what happens on March 31st? Easter. You guys were a little quicker than first service. There was a long dramatic pause. I said March 31st. I'm like, Easter. So we have done this in the past and we're going to do this again. We're going to print out a whole bunch of these, maybe picture this, cards like this, but these are going to be an invitation card to come to our outdoor Resurrection Easter service on Sunday, the 31st of March. And you can go, and this is your assignment. This is how you take this into practical use in your life. You go and you go around to your neighbors and you invite them to come to church, to our outdoor service. If you've never stepped inside a church, that's okay. It's cool. You can come and you can bring your own little chair and sit with the rest of us. We're going to be outside. We'd love to have you come and to share this time with us, to hear about Jesus. And then to take it a step further. 
the 23rd, which is a Saturday, about a, what, a week, a little bit over a week before that Sunday service, we're going to meet here at church for anyone that wants to do this. And we're just, we're going to hit the neighborhoods and we're going to go walking around. We're going to knock on doors and we're going to extend these invitation cards, inviting them to come to our church, Redeemer Bible Church. You know, the one with the big white cross out here on Santiago. Come and join us. And then we're also going to give them an opportunity. Hey, do you need us to pray for you? And maybe the Lord will turn that into an opportunity for us to share the gospel with them. So come on the 23rd on that particular Saturday and join us. And ask the Lord that he would go before us in all of these things. Isn't it amazing that what we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 19, that the Lord has given us this task of being his heralds. Instead of giving the rocks, giving the birds, giving the trees, God could have used any of them, but instead he uses the redeemed. He uses us, he uses the church and us as believers of his church, members of his universal church and this local church to reach out and by his wonderful grace to change the world 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 19, such a sweet verse. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. He has given to us the glorious gospel as our responsibility to take to the world all around us, the neighbors close by us. Because as it says in Romans 10, 14 to 17, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring news of good things. Amen. Let me close this out in in prayer here. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word so that we are not confused when the world doesn't like us, though, when the world hates us. When people don't share our viewpoints when people don't have the same understanding that we have and the things that we hold so dear they don't care about, Lord. We recognize that it's all by grace that you have changed us, that we no longer have the same eyes we used to, that we no longer see things the way we used to, that we have been changed that we no longer hear the same way we used to hear. But now we hear you speaking to us and we understand the things that matter to you are the things that matter to us. And we pray that as we go out from here, that you would use us in this world that does indeed hate us. And as it becomes more and more clear just how much the world hates us, may you give us courage and strength 
through your indwelling Holy Spirit to be the witnesses that you desire for us to be. And Lord, and I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who has not become your friend, that does not know what it is to not be a friend of the world and is still serving Satan as their king, may you save them this morning. May you reveal their sin to them that they, like all of us here this morning, fall short of your holiness, what you desire for us, that we miss the mark, that we lie, we steal, we cheat. And that's just the beginning of all the things that we do that we know the judgment for is death. And that if we were to pay that price, that we would spend all of eternity in hell. But because of your son and his death upon the cross, we can have life. And in the greatest exchange ever, where he takes our sin and his righteousness, his perfect right living, and all that he is, is is credited to us by your wonderful grace. I pray that if anyone here has not believed in your son, Father, for salvation, that they would trust in him and him alone this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.